0: Welcome to Voices of E-Learning with your host, J.W. Marshall
1: and Lena marie Saleh,
0: a podcast that highlights the people who are changing the way we learn and grow.
1: Each week, we'll speak to the innovative minds who are pushing the boundaries and transforming online education.
0: We'll explore their stories and discover how they're empowering students around the globe to achieve success.
1: Join us on this journey and get inspired by the power of online learning.
0: Hello, and welcome everyone to this episode of the Voices of E-Learning. I'm your host, J.W. Marshall with Summit K-12. With me, as always, is Lena Marie Saleh with Canva. Lena, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I am doing well, and I'm excited for this uh, conversation. Our guest on this show is going to be Kareem Farah. He is the co-founder and CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. Kareem, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we'll dive right in uh, the same way we start in every episode, uh, is we like to ask uh, all of our guests, who are you and not what do you do, but what do you love about what you do?
2: Whoa. Didn't expect that. I like it. Um, so I'm Kareem. I'm the co-founder CEO of the Modern Classrooms Project. I lead a nonprofit that is scaling a sort of novel approach to classroom instruction. Uh, what I love to do is help empower educators with an instructional approach that actually works. Um, I think our experience as co-founders and as educators is we were equipped with a one-size-fits-all instructional model that was clearly disjoint from our students' needs. So the fact that we're actually providing an educators nationwide and globally with a pathway to, to feel like they can actually personalize the students' needs and differentiate instruction and do what they intended to do in the profession is 100% what I love. Um, and hearing that directly from educators is the most inspiring part of the work.
0: And we'll just jump right in to kind of how did you get started with this? Why did you decide to come up with this approach? Yeah, I mean,
2: unlike I think a lot of maybe founders and and, and leaders, we never intended to found anything, create anything, or or to like solve anything. Um, I was in my fourth year in the classroom teaching in DC public schools. And at that stage in my career, I was starting to experience the burnout that I think a lot of educators actually feel at that phase. Um, I was sort of always shocked with how ineffective I was at differentiating to students' needs. I always say that differentiation is the most overused and under executed term in education. And I was teaching in school environments with huge amounts of truancy. Unbelievably broad diversity of learning levels and social emotional needs. Um, and I'm at the front of the room, like delivering live lectures, talking at students, vast majority are not following along or not even there and thinking like, this is really bizarre. And this is a broken product that we're delivering at scale. Um, I decided in year four, like, let me go learn about what's out there. And I was sort of shocked. There wasn't anything to actually learn. There was a whole lot of buzzwords to hear competency-based learning, personalized learning, blended learning, self-based learning, and everything in between. Um, There were a lot of incredible ed tech products, and those were awesome. And there were a lot of curriculums, but what there wasn't was a blueprint for how you actually redesign your classroom. Um, It was also... That was like scary, to be honest. It was a very scary moment to be like, wait a minute, I'm committing to rethinking classroom instruction, but when I actually make that commitment... um, I don't actually have anywhere to go to do it. So it was at that stage where I was like, okay, I can either leave the profession or redesign my classroom. And I went the redesign route. Um, We started with the premise that live lectures are the single worst use of teacher time and student time, and that the first thing we need to do is to get rid of them. But we realized that when we outsourced ourselves, like when we brought in videos of folks that weren't us, it felt really hard to engage with the students. It was hard to align into the curriculum, but also students were like, who are you? What's your purpose? When we were trying to teach them content. So we realized like, why don't we just build our own instructional videos? It's not that hard to do anymore. So we built these kind of three to six minute instructional videos that replaced our live lectures. From there, we were like, I think we can now let students work at their own pace. There's no driving force behind why every student needs to be learning lesson three today, just because it's Wednesday. So then we started to launch self-paced learning within units of study. So like in these bursts, one, two weeks at a time. And then finally, then we realized that whole kind of movement around mastery-based and competency-based learning is accessible, but you have to get the self-paced learning first. So once we got there, We said, okay, now what determines whether a student moves forward through the scope of the the learning sequence is competency or mastery. Um, That's what we did. It worked. There were a few videos made about my classroom. um, And we were like, I think this is when you found a nonprofit. So we found the nonprofit in 2018 um, with the vision of just empowering more educators with the approach. And uh, I've been running it for the past five years now. And we have about 52,000 teachers who've gone through our free course and another 7,000 who've gone through our, our structured mentorship program, our virtual mentorship program. So that's the story.
1: I think we'll jump into a little bit of, you know, of the approach and those types of things. But I think what is unique, I think about your approach is that instead of just a lot of times when founders or CEOs decide to make this decision, they're like, okay, I'm out of the classroom. I'm going to go build this product. And I'm not going to test it live in the classroom and kind of get the biggest learnings. But actually, your classroom could be the best lab and learning space for actually learning how to like iterate and modify and like whatever, because you know your students best, but you're also being able to have like more tried and true methods because you're in it. Like you're in the weeds, really in, you know, iterating, building things and that sort of a thing. So do you feel that that also played a unique role into when you did decide to make the transition to the full nonprofit?
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, again, I think that that also starts with like, You don't approach solving a problem with the idea of creating a product. You approach solving a problem by asking yourself, what is the problem in front of you and what solution you can actually deliver? So absolutely creating the solution in our own classrooms, my co-founder and I, is a a key driving force behind why I think it actually works for teachers, right? It's not something that sounds beautiful in a boardroom, like we did it. Um, the other thing is we're a nonprofit, so there isn't like this giant amount of investor capital that you tap into when you have a great idea. So I also ran the organization full-time while being a teacher for a year. And that was the year where we actually trained eight teachers in the summer in my school building. And then in my off periods, I ran around the building and watched them teach. So it wasn't just that the solution was developed, but then we actually ran the pilot while I was teaching, where I was actually then in the other classrooms with my peers on my free periods and understanding like what it is that this was looking like. So because of that, it forced me to not actually go into big scale mode until we really pressure tested whether or not this thing was translatable to other classrooms and other content areas and other grade levels. and. I feel incredibly privileged to have taken that approach. Although if you asked me then, I probably would have been like, this is a really crazy life I'm living, right? Like teaching by day and great non by night. But um, it ended up working out and I think it did make the entire product that we deliver much better.
0: Oh, I was going to say, just so what were the key findings in that first pilot year as far as how can teachers better teach in a way that meets every learner's needs? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Finding number one was it works beyond our classroom and
2: beyond our content area. So, I mean, that was critical. A lot of folks think that these solutions have to be like only for middle school math and like only for high school DLA. And the truth of the matter is, some solutions are like that. But when you're talking about re engineering an entire classroom, like that's just learning science. Like that's what's best for students. And that works even outside of school systems. Like that can work in a company where you're trying to teach every person in the company a new thing about. You know, your HR systems. So, the first thing we learned is it translates. The second thing we learned is teachers do not have the time or space to work with students one on one and in small groups. And if you don't have the time or space to do that, then none of the initiatives we talk about in K 12 education will ever be accessible whether it's differentiation, supporting the whole child, being trauma-informed, building equitable classrooms, creating inquiry, having deep discussions, like all these things are contingent on one core idea, actually working with students one-on-one in small groups. So very quickly, our educators became attached to our instructional approach because they could suddenly do something that has been the dream of what they wanted to create in their classroom. So what we created was this instructional model where once folks did it, they couldn't go back. It was almost like Like uncovering something and saying, whoa, like that other thing we did, we were tricking ourselves. We thought when we were lecturing, students were learning. We thought when we were lecturing before and teaching and that one size fits all moth model we were differentiating, but we weren't. So um we started to see too that this model would follow educators. Like we would hear things like, if I wasn't allowed to do this, then I'd go teach somewhere else and do it this way. And that's when we realized like we might have a movement building experience here, like something that actually can transcend any one type of partnership or any one product. Um those are probably the two big uh, last thing I'll say it made teachers happier. Like they felt like they could do their job better. And they felt like they could actually connect with kids. And I think we misdiagnose teacher burnout very frequently. Like we think it's a lot of these other factors. And the truth of the matter is, if you really feel like you're successful in the classroom, you're going to want to stay in the classroom. The job is awesome when that when you get that feeling, but very few people get that feeling. So then all the other like factors become much more unpleasant and frustrating.
1: So when you're thinking, and I agree with all of that, like if, if a teacher isn't happy, we know, we, you know, you and I were both in the classroom when you are happy and you're successful of what you're being able to do, then you feel this like joy and energy and things to be able to like, cause you're also meeting kids needs, which you don't get to do normally in those other settings. But what are some ways that an educator to can leverage the technology to better meet the needs of students within the classroom?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing folks need to understand about tech in classrooms is tech isn't the primary way that a student learns information. I think that's a huge mistake folks think is the power of tech, right? Is this idea that when you introduce tech into a classroom, that's where the learning happens. And when you do that, you totally devalue the importance of the profession and you totally misunderstand what it takes to actually have a student go from not understanding a skill to mastering a skill. So I think when folks understand that the tech is designed to unleash teacher capacity, like it is a tool that should be leveraged so that you can do the things that are most valuable in the classroom. Then the entire way that you think about introducing technology into the learning space and sequence is completely different. Um, it's also going to eliminate what we often see when tech is leveraged in a classroom, which is a bunch of students staring at screens and like, that's not what you want. So I think ultimately when you kind of start, just like you would play a unit with the end in mind, you start with the end in mind being, hey, my goal is to be able to connect with students one-on-one in small groups for 95% of the class period. Why am I unable to do that at the moment? What you're probably going to find out is you as the educator are, are using time pretty inefficiently in ways that tech can actually really help. Building instructional videos is one of the easiest ways to do that. You're delivering live information in 2023 that can be replaced with a little video and the tools to build videos are there. Uh, You also might be engaging in checks for understanding that only reach one to three kids that take up a lot of time that could be replaced with a question that pops up in an instructional video that says, do you understand what an opposite reciprocal is? Or do you understand you know, what a comma splice is or what a thesis statement is? Um, so those are kind of those key moments in time right, where educators are, are really expending a ton of energy and also losing a ton of time where a tiny fraction of students are engaged that can be replaced with tech. And the difference there is, keeping in mind, digesting direct instruction is not the learning experience. It is like a six to nine minute, a part of the learning experience. Um, the real learning experience is kids collaborating with each other and you intervening and asking really challenging questions and pushing that learning. And that's the hardest part of teaching and learning, but it's the coolest part.
0: Oh, I was just going to say, you're in the right place on the Voices of eLearning podcast because we talk about this all the time. You know that technology isn't the silver bullet. It's the great enhancer, right? It can enhance the learning experience for students. And it can enhance the teaching experience for the educators. And I kind of want to circle back to the differentiated learning. We've been talking about differentiated learning for decades, and it seems like coming out of the pandemic, the technology is finally at the point where we can really do it. Where uh, some of that short, you know, uh, you know, formative assessments can be done quickly online, so that the teacher can not just spend more time small group and on one-on-one, but the just-in-time, right time. Uh, knowing exactly like where the the class is in real time, which is something again we've been trying to achieve for a while, and it seems like we've crossed that hurdle to where technology is no longer a supplement, but it's part of the core. And where you kind of see the next steps? Uh, how do we keep pushing the dial forward in the right way and not just technology all day, screens all day, right? But how do we keep working with teachers to to use the right amount of technology in the right ways moving forward? Yeah. Well, so, you know, one of the things that was fascinating when you started treating like thousands of teachers
2: is we started to realize that because educators are generally equipped with this one size fits all model where there's kind of a performative component, you actually fill up the class time doing that, that when you do unleash teacher capacity, not every teacher knows what to do with that. And I think that's a really interesting concept because then if you're now, if you leave a teacher in a room where kids have all these things to do and they don't know what to do with themselves, then it's probably easier and more convenient to let that tech drive the learning experience. So I actually think what needs to happen is teachers need more support and training on what it means to leverage your time effectively. We say things like data-driven instruction, small group instruction, like it's just a second nature experience. But the reality is no one taught educators how to engage in small group instruction. Uh, No one taught educators to be data-driven. We taught educators to look at a bunch of data, often data that's alarming, and then go teach the next skill the next day. So I actually think in general, educators who use tech best start with figuring out how to use their time best without the tech, and then they understand how to fill in. And to me, the number one indicator of how you can use the tech to accelerate learning is to ask the question, if I want to spend five minutes with four students to support them on a skill they're not understanding, what information do I need? And like then realize when the tech can be the driver of helping you get that information.
1: What I think about technology is exactly what you're saying. It's it's a way to get a return on your instruction. Um, I think that that's a really important component of what we do as educators and exactly what you're saying. The technology is never a replacer for you. It's an enhancer, as we always say. But what it does do is exactly what you said, free up the time to give you the opportunity to have those real, thoughtful, instructional conversations with students who are struggling. And that's and to me, that's what the pandemic did was open Pandora's box to be able to give students who don't normally get to have that opportunity, had the opportunity to learn like that. And I think that for a spot minute, everybody was like, no, we're not going to do any technology, that sort of thing. But, but it really is meant to give teacher capacity and to empower teachers to do what they love. And that's to teach, but just in a different way than that direct sage on the stage type of instruction.
2: It also adds a second layer, which is when you re- use the tech right so that the teacher isn't in this kind of teacher-driven environment, it creates the space for students to build those 21st century skills we need them to build, right? And I, I kind of like that term. I kind of don't like that term because <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. But like we're talking about executive function, we're talking about self-regulation. Uh, what it also does is in an age where students are emotionally dysregulated, in a time when behavior issues are spiking like very rapidly, what you need to do is create worlds where The entire classroom doesn't stop because one student isn't using their time effectively or handling themselves in a great way. And I always say traditional forms of instruction are so high risk. One individual can very easily ruin the entire learning experience. When you're able to leverage a student-centered model, a self-paced model like the one that we've created in Modern Classrooms Project, what ends up happening is a student has greater ownership over their learning, but also less ownership over their peers' learning. And I think that's actually really critical at a time that we're in now. You can't live in a world where any disruption is a disruption for everyone. That's highly problematic.
0: Yeah. And we're uh, both uh, happen to be based in Texas. And I was just in a meeting earlier with science teachers, and we're transitioning our standards uh, from teaching science to doing science. And I think it just makes sense, not just professionally, but. Right. Finally, Texas is on board with, you know, 40 plus other states. <laughs> so take
1: it going nine, 900 years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's exciting because it's also, it's exciting and terrifying for the teachers, right? Because they know this is the best way that students are going to learn by experience and by connecting information with emotion and, you know, actually getting their hands dirty, uh, not just at the lower levels, but at all levels. But it's almost what you said earlier where, okay, we've, we've made this switch. Now, what do you do? Right. Because you've always, Kind of known theoretically how to do one-on-one small group hands-on things but you really haven't had the chance in recent decades right to have the time and the uh the um, permission right to to do this so uh what would you say to those teachers that are like okay yeah i like the concept i like the idea this is why i want to get into teaching but i don't know how to do it I, i'm thinking you're going to be uh providing a lot of those resources in your frameworks to not only give them the information but the confidence and the uh, the permission to to move forward in this better way of teaching.
2: Yeah. I mean, the first thing I'd say is like, take the risk because what are you losing? Um, I've always said in K-12 education, there's this interesting thing that happens where when you approach a new idea and consider trying a new idea, suddenly you imagine the status quo as being lovely. It's like, when you ask a teacher how things are going in their classroom and they're teaching sort of in that one size fits all approach, they have a lot of complaints. They're frustrated. But then you go, hey, try this new thing and they're like, I can't I can't give up that." And it's like, what? You just said it wasn't going well at all. And that same thing applies for principals and district leaders, right? Like let's be honest about what the status quo is. In general, traditional approaches to instruction are largely the worst way you can think about teaching and are designed out of convenience, not about actually moving students ac- across a progression of mastery. So the first thing is you got to make sure you're actually bought in and you understand the limitations of what's going on currently. I think the second thing you got to do is you got you to gotta engage in something that gives you real actionable blueprint. Like One of the things we're super proud of at the Modern Classrooms Project is our free course, learn.modernclassrooms.org, partially because we're a nonprofit. It has literally every single resource we've ever created. So we have no paywall behind any of the resources and templates. So you can just go in and learn this course and it's going to start to chunk out the actual next steps. You know, how do you get rid of your live lectures? What are the real things you can do to do that? How do you actually have the templates, resources, game boards, pacing trackers to know where kids are at in a self paced setting? So, you know, making the leap is going to be hard. You're going to feel like a first year teacher again, but. You're going to be pulling yourself out of a dynamic that you know isn't working and is burning you out,
1: yeah. I always say that you're always going to experience failure when you learn something new. But once you open Pandora's box, like for me, when I started doing you know stem and really doing like full integration of that, like I never wanted to go back to the traditional classroom. And when I did, it was a it was just like a miserable experience because I knew what students were capable of. and the collaborative, timeless, we say 21st century, I like to call them timeless skills because they're really workforce readiness skills that lead themselves to lifelong learning. But but you'll never go back. Like it's uncomfortable. It's hard to be uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable is worth it for what you get in the long run. Totally,
2: totally. You can't unsee it.
0: No, that's and this is what we promote to our students right to become lifelong learners to be continuously improving <laughs> and we need to practice what we're preaching to them and not uh do as I say not as I do right so i think we're we're overdue for that and i think fortunately one silver lining of the pandemic is it did kind of force this systemic change in how we approach these these problems and uh adopting technology and and innovating in new ways because it was necessary and now we have kind of a a window of opportunity to keep pushing forward in that practicing what we preach continuous improvement. Um, And so for me, it kind of boils down to like, how do we teach the kids how to learn, right? Because that's more important than what they learn. And how do we build relationships and inspire the kids to want to learn? Because that's more important if you don't have that that drive to continue because we always again another cliche like the jobs of the future don't exist yet. So why are we memorizing facts and figures? Right, we need to be teaching them how to learn and and inspiring them. And I think this kind of comes full circle. The way that technology can enhance it, the way that we can approach the classroom in a new way, is going to give teachers the time and the strategies to accomplish those two things. And if we can do those two things with kids, the sky's the limit. Totally agree, and the
2: kids know it too. By the way, like you know. They can open TikTok, YouTube, and everything else. So they're starting to, yeah. un- and they also lived through a pandemic where they were at home and they had to ask these questions of like, wait, so what was the point of in-person school? And like, why do we have teachers? And like, what do the teachers do for us? Right. They, they started to ask those questions. So you can't really get away with thinking, oh, I'll just talk at a bunch of students and then they'll think that's a compelling way to intake information. And then I'll give them a worksheet and then we'll keep them. It's just like, they figured it out. Um, they figured out that they don't actually need that moving forward, and they also figured out that they should have unrestricted access to resources and content in perpetuity. So it's interesting too. I think sometimes the best driving force for innovation is that students ask for it. And I think they're kind of asking for it at scale. They don't always know how to ask for it in the best of ways. Sometimes it just leads to like big behavior issues, but that's them asking for something different quite frequently
1: yeah so on the note of the behavior issues and obviously you sprinkle in a little bit of this but you know you and i being in the classroom there's always that one student or a few students that you're constantly if you were to count the amount of times that you have to stop during your day to reinforce or you know to redirect these students there's there's like hours and hours and hours and months of learning lost to correct these students. So what are some ways that, you, that your program or the Modern Classrooms Project is helping to basically thwart these like behavior disruptions and things that happen in the classroom?
2: Yeah, I think we have to ask ourselves the source of them, right? So where is the source of an issue? I would say when I was teaching, the vast majority of these issues happened when I was trying to command the whole room. And they would happen when I perceived a student as being disengaged. I then called them out. They then got pissed, and now we were angry at each other. And I also think that's the worst way to treat anyone. Like, if can you imagine if we went on a meeting tomorrow and there were twelve people there, and I unmuted myself and called someone out for their behavior? Like, how does that? The the idea that that's going to translate to a positive outcome is completely ludicrous. But that's actually how teachers are taught to address behavior issues. So obviously, once you've eliminated the need for this like whole group lecture, now I don't mean discussions. Discussions are actually not when the behavior issues come up, right? they're these interesting back and forths. It's when you're just talking at students you expect them to be compliant and disengaged. So you got to eliminate those in the first place, because those are really bad for behavior management issues. But the second thing is, once you do that, it's not like behavior issues disappear. But I think the big mistake we've been making for years now is an obsession with disengagement as opposed to an obsession with re-engagement. Like if I just walk into a room tomorrow and just look for people to be disengaged and then call them out, I'm going to be really busy. I'm also going to be really frustrated. And I'm also going to have forgotten what humans do in 2023. I'm going to have held my students to a much more irrational expectation of time usage than I would hold myself to or my peers to. And I often will coach leaders on this. Like when we walk in with assistant superintendents and, and principals, I'll say like, I can walk into you right now and I can see that I kid disengaged because I took their phone out and I can get in their face about it. Or I can give them 60 seconds, 120 seconds and see if they're going to recheck back into the learning experience. And if they don't, then I'm going to walk up to that student and not say, give me my phone. I'm going to say, hey, are you aware that you just spent like a large chunk of time not learning? not engaged in the learning experience and see what they say, right? because your job is not to just micromanage this experience. Your job is to actually get students to understand that their engagement is in their best interest, and that it's okay to check out sometimes, but your speed with which you can check back in is a defining factor. Um, The final piece is like you have to have the ability to actually pull a kid aside and have a conversation with them without stopping the whole room. And, like, you can't do that until you've created a student centered learning environment. I actually had a strategy in my classroom. It was the step outside strategy because, you know, it was really easy when you run a self paced classroom to ask a student to step outside the room to have a conversation in the hallway. But what I realized was students had internalized that that was always a negative issue. So if I asked you to step outside, you're actually in trouble. So in the first few weeks of school, I would ask students to step outside to praise them, to completely rethink that dynamic. So I'd ask a student to step outside and they'd be like, why? What, what did I do? And I'd be like, can you just go. And then I'd go out there and I'd say something positive about what they did and they'd come back smiling and all the students were like, wait a minute, this is not what I was expecting to happen. And that normalized this idea that I can have a conversation with the outside. Because when I can do that, it totally reorganizes the way that I can support you as a student. The students can be much more comfortably honest about why they weren't using their time effectively when they're not also worried about being cool in front of their peers.
0: Yeah. And I think a similar strategy we hear a lot about too is with parent engagement is giving them a text every once in a while, hey, thanks for getting your kid here on time, or that, you know, your kid's crushing it today, and not, oh, the only time I hear from my teacher or from the school is when there's a problem. Um, I think the same thing is something that, as parents have gotten more involved in the learning process, which overall is probably a good thing through the pandemic. And I think we're leveling out at a more appropriate level than we were during the pandemic. Um, But I I think that's a a good point. And and I kind of want to close with the last uh, topic we want to talk about that kind of dovetails into this is mental health. Um, And, you know, making sure before we can teach them anything, right, that they're the SEL is there, that the the students are in the right mindset um, to learn. And hopefully, again, Fall Circle, the the technology, enhancing the learning, giving teachers more time to build relationships and to really know what's the source of the success, the source of the frustration. Um, You know, they they can work on that. But give us your take on, um, you know, how does your program help uh, address the 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 growing mental health uh, challenges that we're seeing post-pandemic?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of students are stressed. It's stressful to be in learning environments where you sit down, wait for a teacher to start talking at you. If you don't understand them, information disappears. And if you miss three lessons and you come in, you're just supposed to suddenly pick up where you left off, right? Especially when the reason you missed class was something traumatic. So I think ultimately, like you, when you organize an environment that's rigid, that is high pressure in that way, that's just stressful, right? We need to create the space for students to be able to ease into the learning environment. The other thing I just say is like, I think folks have sort of created this magical world of what relationship building is for students. Um, And when we do that, we also make it seem like there's this character trait or this style of teaching that is good at relationship building, like it's a binary thing that's a good relationship building teacher or a bad one. And the reason why is when you are standing at the front of the room and are responsible for putting on a performance one to 10 times a day, that's a specific type of skill that not everyone should have or needs to have. And to then be able to cultivate a community and a relationship building in that venue is something you're going to find in one in a hundred people. But when you pull yourself away from the front of the room and your job is actually to just get to know kids, any teacher can be a great relationship builder. And when you build relationships with students, you're able to support their mental health. Now, I want to be clear on that. Educators are not like psychologists, right? They're not counselors. Their job is to build relationships with students and also be able to identify when they are not the person that should be intervening and someone else does, right? But it's super hard to do that when you're standing at the front of the room and you know a kid in the back just heads down, they look disgruntled, um, but you don't know how to address that, right? So I think removing some of those fundamental barriers and really creating a student-centered classroom allows for these pivots to happen anytime, anywhere, and also allows you to build those relationships. Whereas the other format it's unpleasant, right? It is like not, it, just imagine being a student that I can't even imagine again, going into a lecture style format, right? If I'm struggling that day, I sit there and then my teacher calls me out. Like I'm going to get in their face, obviously, because I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I'm struggling. And now you're telling me to tell you how you factor a quadratic, right? It's like a really weird dynamic that we need to get rid of. Um, and I feel for teachers because they haven't been equipped with that, with instructional models that actually teach them how to do that.
0: Okay. So so last question. And, and we've had uh, different guests kind of take a different take on this question. So I'm always curious to ask. And I think the answer is probably it depends, right? Which is the best answer for a lot of questions uh, in systemic change in education. Um, but we've talked a lot about the teacher role moving from the sage on the stage to the, uh, you know, the more the relationship builder. Some have called that, you know, the facilitator of learning or the guide of learning. Um, and some people have kind of latched onto that. It's like, yes, that's what we need to do. And others have pushed back on it. Where does was your program kind of fall into, do you have some terminology that you use? And if so, what does that, what does that mean? Cause yeah, I could be a consultant that could mean a million different things, but, uh, where do you kind of fall in the role of teaching moving forward, not sage on the stage, not sitting back and letting the technology do everything and, you know, kicking your feet up on the desk. Where, where do you see that? And what terminology do you use? I think we actually use small group and one-on-one instruction.
2: Like I think what's confusing about those two terms is stage on a stage is not what we want, but then the alternative, the facilitator, can sometimes err on the side of too much student freedom, and then it starts to feel uncomfortable. It's like, I'm the facilitator, but no, I actually have an obligation to like teach a set of standards, and if I don't, then my students actually aren't prepared for the next grade level and aren't going to be prepared for the real world. I think the real thing you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be spending a massive amount of time in one-on-one and small group instruction because that's where you're building relationships with students, but that's also where you're ensuring that they're mastering content. And I think we need to kind of go back to that. In some ways, that's like an old school idea, right? It's like not that novel, but I think the problem is we actually haven't focused on that being the primary thing that you're trying to create in classrooms. um, And that's why folks are so frustrated. So when you're doing that, you're sort of a facilitator, right? You're definitely not a stage on stage, but it's a it's a very structured type of facilitation that's data driven and focused on students learning, and also creates conditions where there are guardrails for students to feel supported.
0: And I just popped into my head, guide on the side is the new term A lot side. Of people are using, yeah, on, right?
1: Yeah, it is yeah. guide on the side. Yeah.
0: Yep move from stage on stage to guy on the side. But again, what does that mean? And I'm so glad of the work you're doing because that helps put some meat on the bones for, okay, sounds good in theory, but how does that work in practice? Um, I think we've hit our time limit, but I definitely, Lena, do you have another question?
1: Well, I was just going to ask. So if a school district or a person is wanting to, you know, obviously they're listening to this podcast, I'm like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to learn how to adopt this. What are some of the ways that they can do it or, you know, get in contact or kind of take that approach with you. Yeah,
2: totally. I mean, modernclassrooms.org is our website. We're a nonprofit. Learn.modernclassrooms.org is our free course, which I encourage anyone and everyone to go into. And it's just a course that's going to sort of teach you the experience. And then we partner with hundreds of schools and districts in a more structured way, where we run this virtual mentorship program where teachers opt in, they get paired with a mentor, they actually design their modern classroom, and then they launch it. And that way, there's kind of a partner with us button on our website. You can click there. There's a form to fill out. We'll respond immediately. We'll schedule time and just talk about what that means and what that feels like to actually partner with us in a more robust way. Obviously, that stuff involves actual exchange of dollars and funding. So, you know, the key is that we want to create the space where anyone can access this anytime, anywhere through our free course. And then, if you want something really robust, like you want to take this to scale in your community, we have the we have the structures for that as well.
0: I love it. All right. Well, that's a, sounds like a great place to wrap up today's conversation. But uh, we can't wait to uh, check in with you again uh, later this year and uh, see uh, the new innovations as we uh, continue to move forward with our uh, you know progress in the education system. Kareem, uh, Farah, thank you so much for joining today. Thank you for having me. It was great. And Lena, of course, thank you for joining as the uh, the co host as well.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Spun episode.
0: All right, and to our audience, be sure to check out past episodes on our website or wherever you consume your podcasts and be sure to always, always keep learning.